For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking in or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. All right, we're going to spend some time considering uh, this text together. Uh, There are many proverbs, many sayings that relate to money in our culture. So see if you can fill in some of the blanks, all right? Ready? A penny saved is a penny earned. You can fill it, you do to your head or out loud, doesn't matter to me. Uh, Money can't buy... Happiness, yeah. A fool and his money are soon parted, if you know that one. And money doesn't grow on trees. Uh, on trees. We, we have lots of things we say about money in our world. Lots of little lessons that we you know, try to pass on to our children or whatever about what money is and does. But the question today is a little bit different. How does our financial lives, or how do our financial lives relate to our spiritual lives? In what sense or to, to what extent does God care what we do with our money? And this is not a sermon merely for those who already have, you know, stacks of cash. If you're a child, if you're a teenager, if you're a broke university student or college student, this is actually the perfect time to begin considering the, the relationship of money to your life. Because actually, once you start getting money, once you have a paycheck rolling in, it's almost harder to consider at that point. But as God through Malachi speaks to the people about their lives with him, he knows how important money is. And God cares how they use their money. In fact, their love of money is keeping them from God. They're not ready for God to come to them because their financial lives are not in order. So God speaks to them to call them back to himself. I want to take today's text in four parts. We'll talk about two things that do not change. We'll talk about this whole idea of robbing God. You heard that. There's, a, there's something about testing God in the middle. We'll talk about that too. And then finally, the, the end of the passage kind of outlines these two choices or two paths you can walk. 
But our text opens with the word for. I don't know if you see it there at the top. Meaning that whatever is about to come in this passage hinges on or is tied to what has come before. And I'm not going to reiterate all of last week's sermon. You can go listen to it. But how it ended was on a list of sins. And God accused the people. He says, you're being adulterers and you're being sorcerers and you're oppressing your employees with their wages and so on. And with that in mind, God says, for he is the Lord, he is Yahweh and does not change. And this phrase, especially if you were a Jewish person, you'd know immediately this has echoes of how God introduced himself to the people. When Moses asked God, what's your name? When I go to the people of Israel and say, God sent me, you know, who are you? And God says, I am who I am. And that name implies a kind of changelessness. Though Israel had been enslaved in Egypt hundreds of years, God is still the same God. And thousands of years after Israel leaves Egypt now in in, in the book of Malachi, God is still God. God is still the same. And he says, my sameness is of benefit to you. He quickly points out, still in verse 6, he says, my sameness is the reason you are not consumed. The reason you are a people and continue to be a people is because I continue to love you. I continue to have compassion on you. If it all depended on Israel, they would have been ended by now. It would have been long over. But because it doesn't depend on them, it depends on God's love and faithfulness. They endure. So God does not change. That's the first thing that does not change. But what's the second thing that does not change? It's a little trickier to see. Verse 7, the people have been the same since the days of their forefathers, but not the same good. They've been the same bad. Throughout the generations, the people have consistently turned aside from God's statutes and not kept them. You know, back in verse 6, God refers to them as the children of Jacob. And we're like, oh, children of Jacob, no big deal. And we're like, well, Jacob, look, he was chosen by God. He was used by God. But you read the stories, you're like, this guy's a schemer, he's a rascal, there's all sorts of things. He's a deceiver, he tricks people all the time. And God tells the people, it's a little bit subtle, but he says, oh, you're his kids. You resemble that Jacob in some way. Chosen by me, but, you know, rascals, all the same. You've always gone astray, you've always walked in the steps of your father, Jacob. Specifically, God says, you've turned aside from my statutes. Now, the word statutes, um, it's not the usual word for commands, but some scholars think this, is, this referred to uh, God's laws that were carved into stone and posted in public places. So think of like a town square or something like that. And it's sort of like God is reminding them, you haven't even kept the most basic of commands. I'm not accusing you of breaking an obscure law that you barely know about. You've broken all the easy ones or all the simple ones. Generation after generation, you're the same. You have children, but they struggle in the exact same way. You're all children of your father, Jacob. But God, listen, God still loves them. He still pursues them. And we see, we've talked about this a number of times in Malachi. He still appeals to them to return. End of verse seven. He's like, I'm ready. I'm ready to return to you, but there must be movement on your part. God will not return without them repenting and changing. And in this way, God's the same as he ever was. Always merciful, always loving, always ready to forgive. And these two things that do not change, our character and God's, it continues to our day. I don't think many of us have any Jewish ancestry. I think only a few of us have spent a decent amount of time in Israel. But we're still children of Jacob. (laughs) We're still his sons. We're still his daughters. Still grasping, still deceiving, still wrestling with God. In the thousands of years since Jacob was around, we've not evolved to a higher or different plane of existence. 
The technology has improved. We're sitting in this lovely heated gym this morning or whatever, but, but, but there's really nothing new under the sun. And even as that truth kind of bothers us, you wish it weren't so, the same truth is a comfort when it comes to God. Because our modern forms of sin, they don't stop him from loving us. We are far from the land of Israel, but God still can love us here. The Lord does not change, and therefore, we are not consumed. And these words are as true on a snowy day. It's snowing outside. Now, in, in eastern Ontario, they're as true here as they are in Bethlehem or in the plains of the Jordan River. And thus, the invitation God gives is the same. Return to me, and I'll return to you. Now, now the question, of course, naturally arises, and you see it there in the text. So, like, well, and what does it mean to return? What's gone wrong that needs to be straight? Which leads us to part two, robbing God. The people are like, well, how shall we return? I can't tell if they're playing dumb or if this is actual. You know, they're, they're being serious. They don't know. But in verse eight, God responds with his own question. He says, will man rob God? Which you're like, that doesn't feel like an answer. But then God quickly clarifies, and this is an answer. But you are robbing me. Now, robbing is something more than theft. So this is not Israel, you know, sneaking into God's house late at night and, you know, you know, swiping a laptop or whatever. It's not that kind of like sneaky thievery. The Hebrew word for robbery has connotations of plundering, the, the forcible taking. And so maybe you can picture it this way. God has a big basket. In his basket are all of the world's goods and resources and wealth. It's all his. He owns it all. He has it all. And God says, the people of Israel, you are coming along and you're, you're reaching into the basket and, and you're, you're wrenching pieces away. You're, you're forcibly taking things out. You're not sneaking, you're plundering. You're not withholding, you're forcibly taking. And the people are like, whoa, where, how, where is this occurring? You know, they throw up their hands again. And God replies, oh, it's happening in the tithes and contributions. Now this, and this requires just a bit of explanation, so, so hang with me here. The people of Israel were commanded in the law of God, offer, God, offer back to God one-tenth, which is a tithe, one-tenth of everything the land produced. So if you're a barley farmer and you grow, you grow a bunch of barley, you give one-tenth of your barley to God. Or if, you, if you grow grapes and you make wine, you, know, you give one-tenth of the wine or the grape, uh, the grape harvest. And these products, this, these tithes, they were used for three purposes— they supported full-time ministry workers, aka priests, temple workers, uh, and their families. They were used for relief of the poor, and they were used for the, uh, the number of annual feasts and festivals and celebrations. So all of Israel is supposed to bring a tithe to God, but also there were other contributions over and above a tithe that were given on different needs and occasions. And it's, it's kind of a long list. There's a lot in the law. We don't have time to get into all of it. But think of it this way. A normal Israelite might expect 15 to 20% of their annual gross production, whatever you're producing, would be given over to God for spiritual purposes. Now, interestingly, this is actually kind of low for ancient times. Egypt, during the time of Joseph, you can, you can read about it, um, they exacted a 20% tax straight off the top from all their citizens. Another of other ancient nations, we have some history that suggests anywhere from a third to a half was quite common. But anyways, but these tithes and contributions, they were the expectation for God's people. And really not just expectation, but if withheld, God says, constitutes robbery. So you need to understand Malachi is saying there's a very different mindset for the people of God when it comes to their wealth. Malachi says you shouldn't begin by picturing everything belonging to you and then you give God a little bit back so that he's, you know, happy. No, the biblical mindset is you begin by picturing everything belonging to God and if you take from God more than what he has allotted to you, 
80, 85% or whatever. If you take back more than that, uh, then you are robbing God. See, most of us begin this first way. We think my salary is $2,000 or $5,000 or $10,000, however much you make a month, and it all belongs to me. And out of my money, I will give this much to God. That's where, we norm- that's where most of us begin. We begin with us and we work backwards. But the Old Testament biblical mindset is different. Everything belongs to God, and we decide what to do with what's left over after tithes and contributions. And it's a very different way of thinking about your life. It's much more akin, it's not, this isn't exactly right, but it's close enough. It's much more akin to having some automatic withdrawal program, you know, where, where money comes off your paycheck, it just never hits your bank account, you know, it's going to RSP or whatever, but it's just money you don't see. And that's sort of what, what Malachi is saying. All things are God, all, all things are God's, and he gives us what's left over after tithes and contributions. Now, one other wrinkle that's it's important. If you ever had a garden, you know, in your backyard or whatever, if you, or if you grew up on a farm, lived around a farm, you'll know that calculating 10% of your produce is kind of tricky. <laughs> now, many of us have, have salaries or at least like an hourly wage of some kind, and you're like, it's really easy to calculate a percentage. But if you're growing olives or growing sheep, you know, growing beets or whatever, like 10%, it's a little bit tougher And my point with saying this is the tithe was always an internal measure, not really an external one. It would have been really hard for a random priest to say, oh yeah, that's 10% of, of your barley harvest this year. This standard is mainly given to God's people to measure themselves by. Now, God would know, of course, but that's about it. It was really between you and God. The the priest isn't weighing out all your cabbages to see, did you bring enough cabbages to to equal 10% or more? But to return to our text, the problem in Israel, people are running away from God by not giving to him what's already his. They're refusing to return the tithes and contributions to the one who ultimately owns them. Then God says, you're robbing me. All of a sudden, the sort of capital A auditor, God, shows up and like, your account is short. You haven't, you haven't been living up to this. And it's sort of an interesting textual thing. End of verse 9, God says, the whole nation of you is guilty. And the Hebrew there, it's kind of fun, they, they use this word goy for nation. And you're like, well, whatever. what does that mean? It just means that was normally a word used for all the, the pagan Gentile nations. What God means is, you are living like a nation, but not my nation. You're living like all the other nations. You're just a, an average nation. And we might imagine that Israel had some good excuses for this robbing of God. You know, historically, economic times were difficult. There was war, there was droughts, pestilence. Economically, they weren't flourishing. Perhaps many of the people were just trying to get by. Or maybe some of the people were giving less because they were worried for the future. You know, who knows what might happen next year? The Persians might be back. We better save while we can. Or maybe they felt like their giving was being wasted. Why are we giving to this festival, this feast, that seems unnecessarily extravagant? And I mean, if we had the time, we could probably sit together and figure out a lot more reasons that people were failing to give. But it sort of doesn't matter because verse 9 tells us they are cursed with a curse for their robbing of God. Their reasons, whatever they were, weren't good enough. God commanded them to give, and they weren't. Now, the exact nature of the curse isn't spelled out. We don't know. What does it mean that they're cursed with a curse? It, It doesn't say But if you reverse the blessings in verse 11, it's quite likely that we can imagine the curse to be something to do with pests, droughts, 
and just a general underperformance of, of, their, of their crops and barns or whatever, which also are covenant curses promised in the law. But whatever the reason for not giving, God says, it's sinful and it's keeping you apart from me. And at this point, we have to ask important questions, don't we? What is the relationship between Old Testament believers and us, if you're a Christian? Is it sinful for Christians to refuse to give? Or perhaps more relevant, at what point does a lack of giving become sinful? 5%, 10%, net or gross? What if you can't feed your family? There's a lot of questions. The New Testament perspective on giving financially is this. I'll give you a couple things to think about. A tithe is nowhere commanded in the New Testament. We don't have that kind of language. Rather, we get general statements like 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he says, on the first day of the week, aka Sunday, each of you put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. How much should you give? Paul says, according to your prosperity. It's like, okay, well, thanks. That's, yeah, that's one guide rail. Acts 20, 35, Paul is quoting Jesus. He says, as the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than receive. That's another like guide rail. It doesn't tell us. It just says it's a general commendation. 2 Corinthians 8, 7, see that you excel in the grace of giving. And like we could go on and on. How much should you give? All the New Testament writers are like, not going to give you any specifics, especially compared to, you know, a tenth. Okay, I got that. I know how much that is. We don't have those specifics. We have guidelines. We're told to be as generous as God has been towards us. Okay? We're told to be sacrificial, as sacrificial as Christ was for us. We're told that our generosity or lack thereof is a proof of our love or lack thereof for God. And we are told, just like Malachi reminds the people here, everything belongs first to God and is given to us generously by him. And so what does stay the same is just like the Old Testament, giving remains basically an internal test. It's very hard for me or anyone else in your life to audit you and to say, yep, that's enough or no, that's not enough. I mean, a tithe may be a helpful guideline, but it doesn't always apply very well. How is a child supposed to tithe? What about someone on a fixed income? Someone on government assistance living on $900 a month or something like that. It, it's, it's, just, it's not as simple as we want it to be. Statistically, I can tell you, evangelical Canadians, this is a couple years old, but evangelical Canadians give 4% of their income away. Churches like ours, people like us. So I just simply ask you, does that feel generous? Is that, does that feel proportionate to the way that God has loved us? There's plenty of dis discontinuity between us and these Israelites, but I do know this for sure. Plenty of us run away from God in our economic lives, right? We, we sin against God, and the truth is written on our credit card statements and in our investment portfolios. And maybe today is a good time to take stock of your financial life. And look, I, I hate to say this, but I will. This is not because we're trying to make our year-end budget. It's not. Your, listen, your soul is far more important than the budget of our church. I'm telling you to take stock of your financial life because the Israelites are robbing God and God says, it's endangering your soul. You are distant from me and you don't realize it and it's going to cause immense spiritual harm if you don't get this figured out. Forget the year-end budget. Don't let your income distance you from God. Audit yourself. <laughs> sit down with yourself. Sit down with a friend or your spouse. Just ask hard questions. Is what I'm giving, does it feel generous? Does it feel sacrificial? Does it feel proportional to how God has loved us? That's robbing God. We gotta move on though. Testing God. 
So far, giving's been viewed kind of in a negative light, like, oh, not, not doing it right, not doing this right, here are the consequences, curses, all that stuff. But the text takes an interesting turn, doesn't it? God invites the people to test him. Now, normally, we'd say, biblically, testing of God, not something encouraged by the scriptures. In fact, down at the bottom, testing is kind of said, you know, negatively. All these people are testing God and not being punished for it. But God says, if you look at verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and thereby put me to the test. He invites them to test him. He says, bring in the whole amount. Bring in everything you're supposed to bring in and see if I don't throw open the windows of heaven and pour a blessing down on you. And if you read in verse 11 and 12, God further promises, if, if you're faithful in your tithing, uh, he will be faithful in his blessing. He'll rebuke the pests. <laughs> no more rats. No more, no more bugs eating, eat, eating your crops. The vines will be plentiful. All the curses will be reversed, and all the nations will look at Israel and say, oh, wow, how, how, how blessed their land is, how much their God loves them. The opening of the windows of heaven it's kind of difficult to translate, but I want to give you an illustration that I hope will convey it. A couple weeks ago, Jen and I, my wife Jen, we were hiking in Algonquin, and just inside the eastern gate of the park, you know, like that big stone, that big stone entrance to the park, um, there's this trail. It says like logging museum or logging history or something like that. Just like a little, little trail by the road. And as you walk along this trail, you go by a lake, and then uh, towards the end, there's like a small river where the lake drains out. And they've built a wooden chute into the, in, into the end of, uh, into the place where the river meets the lake. And what loggers used to do in old times is they'd chop down all these trees, you know, in the park, and, they, and they'd float there, they'd get them down to the lake, and they'd float them over there, and, and they, they had this gate built at the top, and they'd close a sluice gate, like a little wooden wall, they'd slide it down, and it would dam up all the water in the lake. And the water would build up and build up behind it, and the, these logger people, they'd get all the logs lined up, and when they were ready, they'd open the sluice gate, and the rush of water going down this, this chute would carry all the logs through this small river to the next lake, you know, where they could be floated or, you know, down to some, you know, factory or, or, or sawmill or whatever. But for days, water would pile up and pile up behind this gate until the loggers were ready. And this, I would submit to you, is a picture God is giving Israel. He's like, I've closed the gate. All the blessings are piling up behind it. They're ready. They're there. I stand ready to give them. But until you're ready, I'm going to hold back. He says, I'm waiting for your economic repentance. And once it comes, God says, I'm going to open the gate. The blessings will come rushing forth and you'll see it and you'll feel it and it will pour down on you. This is a kind of re-promising of covenant blessings. You read Deuteronomy, this is what God has said all the way along. If you will be my people, if you will do what I ask you and obey my law, I will bless you. But if you don't, if you won't, then I'll curse you. It's this one-to-one -one relationship. It's very direct and concrete. And though Malachi comes uh, thousands of years after the law, God says, I haven't changed. These same blessings are available. I'm waiting for you. Now, this promise, I think, makes some of us feel uncomfortable. Because it feels like prosperity, what's called prosperity gospel teaching, which says, believe in Jesus and you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But that view, that teaching, it's, it's erroneous, and it puts the benefits of God ahead of God himself. The primary instruction of, of, this, of this passage, and indeed all of the scriptures, is return to God. 
That's the primary thing. The primary motivation is not a get-rich-quick scheme or this will pay off. In fact, Jesus comes along and he's like, you can't serve God in money. You have to love one. One will always win. You have to begin by choosing God and believing he owns everything. Remember this basket over here? And anything he gives is pure gift, not owed. But God does promise that he will bless his people. In general, the people of God, when faithful, when obedient, were blessed. And that includes economically. Now, were there faithful but poor people in Israel? Yeah, there were. We actually have a number of examples in the Old Testament of that. Were there faithful prophets and priests who did their duties and were persecuted? Yes, of course there are. This is not a universal principle to be applied to the, like on an individual level to all the people with no exceptions. But in general, particularly in the Old Testament, if you obeyed God, you could expect, and you, you should expect, according to Malachi and other places, blessing. Now in the New Testament, down through the ages to us, it gets more complicated because the land, the temple, the blessings are more spiritual than physical. We're freed from the tithe and told to be generous But then also the curses and blessings of the covenant are not exactly the same. We don't have an ancestral land. We don't have a temple. We don't have an earthly king. We don't have an earthly kingdom that can get cursed or blessed. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing we could have. But I will say this. If you follow the scriptures teaching on money, on wealth, if you live wisely according to the scriptures, that normally results in blessing. And I have a thousand caveats I want to offer to that statement. But listen, the Proverbs about money are generally true. If you work hard and spend and save diligently and you you give generously and you look carefully towards the future and you avoid foolish mistakes, look, those things normally pay off. Not in piles of wealth, but in a reasonable life. And of course there are exceptions. Many Christians are entirely faithful and don't see any economic benefit. Economic hardship, poverty, that's not the same thing as sinful living. Neither is wealth equivalent to faithful living. But there's just some correlation. See, with confidence, I can repeat what God tells you here. Test him in this. Go ahead. Become a faithful, generous giver like Christ was to you and just see what happens in your life. See how your heart changes. See, see what God does in you spiritually and physically. Allow God to pry money's grip off of your heart. And hope that maybe God blesses you economically, but you don't depend on it. But this all leads us then to our, our final section where there's two choices, two paths are spelled out. Verse 13 to 15 spell out one path, one place you can land. You can conclude that following God is simply not worth it. Do you see that in verse 14? Some of the people like, are like, it's vain. <laughs> it's, it's not worth it. Why? They say there's no profit in it. I don't think that financial word is any mistake. Do you hear the attitude? Where is the profit? Where is the gain? The motive for some people in the Christian life is personal advantage. They're in it to see what they can get out of it. And they come to a church or they come to a small group or whatever because they think it's going to give me good business contacts. It's going to make my spouse happy. God is going to bless me in some way. But the bottom line of this first view is not God, but the self. And once it becomes apparent, as it always does at some point, that you're not getting ahead and you're not being advantaged, they just leave it behind. What's the point of tithing? What's the point of worshiping, they say, if it just costs you something, if you just have 10% less money at the end of the month? 
I'm not sure how many of us would have the courage to admit this first perspective out loud. But I assure you, it is a temptation for some of us. We're children of Jacob, remember? There, there is in us some remnant of this attitude that wants to spend and save on ourselves. And we, we chafe at giving and we refuse to trust God. And perhaps more tellingly, as this passage goes on, we envy the wicked. Do you see that in verse 15? This first group says, all the arrogant people are blessed. All these evildoers, they're getting ahead and there's no consequences for the sin. Friends, is this attitude present in your heart? Beware the envy of the wicked who are prospering. And beware the fickleness of your own heart that wants to make cost-benefit analyses to following God and try to calculate, is it worth it? See, this first choice is sort of a selfish pragmatism. What's the profit? Second choice is different. Verse 16 to 18. Some hear the rebuke, and it says they fear God. They take God seriously. They realize my economic life, it doesn't match up to what God has commanded. And so they, this group of people get together and like, we're all going to work together to make God our priority. And this again is a, a brief reminder of the importance of community. It's, it's just so essential. The Christian life and, and the financial part of the Christian life becomes very hard without support without other people doing it too. But if the people of God can band together and, and they write their names down, they're like, let's get a book and we're all gonna put our names in the book and we're all gonna say, we wanna follow God. That becomes very important. See, when you hear the demands God makes of your, of your financial life, the second option is to fear him and walk in obedience. But what I want to show you, what I want you to see here, is that the obedience of the people, it's beautiful, it's inspiring. What I want you to see is the response of God to the response of the people. What happens when God's people do their best to obey? Look at verse 17. We'll, we'll finish with this. God speaking, they shall be mine. They will be my treasured possession. I will spare them. And in verse 18, the whole world will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. This is grace and mercy. People who've wrecked their economic lives and were far from God, people who'd loved money too much and they'd been stingy and not generous, when they repent, God moves toward them in grace. Do you see, to the people who say, I will give up a small portion of my earthly treasure, what does God say? He says, I will make you my treasure. To those who give up the tithe, God says, I am going to spare you. See, in, each, uh, in our service every week, when you look through the bulletin, there's these headings. They're in the, those little black section where it says, God calls, and God cleanses, and God communes, and God sends. And look, this same dynamic is all over the passage. God calls to them in their sin, reminding them of his goodness, or God calls to them, reminding them of his goodness and love. And then he cleanses them from their sin. He offers forgiveness to any who would turn to him. And then he communes with them. He promises his love and blessing to make them a treasure. And he promises to walk with them, to send them into the future where he will be with them and make them his own. So of course we participate. Of course we make important choices. But what I want you to see is that God is the main actor in this text. And it's to him I invite you. My plea this morning is not just, oh, could you change your credit card habits a little bit? No, return to a God who loves you and wants to cleanse you and walk with you and make you his treasure. And it is at Christmas and on the cross we see the lengths to which God will go to call back his people mired in economic sin. So to those who struggle with greed and envy and selfish spending, 
To those of us who've not treated God as God in our financial lives, listen to me. Christ died for that too. He died and he rose so that you might become free and generous and forgiven and joyful. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you as people whose economic lives are at best suspect and probably largely a mess. And we need to be cleaned up. We're not ready for you to show up and audit us, Lord. So please help us. Please change our hearts that we might love you first and most and best. And secondly, may our actions fall in line with new and different hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.